This is the State of Things broadcasting from the American Tobacco Historic District. I'm Anita Rao. A new film anthology series from award-winning director Steve McQueen mines the triumphs and hardships of the West Indian community in London. The five films that make up small acts explore life for the immigrant community in the mid-60s to the 80s and highlight important stories left out of UK history books. It is one of the topics that we'll be talking about today on Back Channel, a recurring series connecting culture and context. We'll also look at HBO's adaptation of Ta-Nehisi Coates' best-selling book, Between the World and Me. Popular culture experts Natalie Bullock-Brown and Mark Anthony Neal are with me now. Natalie is a filmmaker and teaching assistant professor at North Carolina State University. And Mark is the James B. Duke professor and chair of the Department of African and African American Studies at Duke University. He also hosts the webcast Left of Black. Hey, Natalie and Mark, welcome back. Thanks, Anita. Good to be here. First, we are going to be examining the execution of Brandon Bernard. He was put to death last week at the age of 40. He was one of five gang members convicted of killing two youth ministers in Texas in 1999. And Brandon was the ninth execution since the Trump administration resumed executions. They did that this July after a 17-year hiatus. Brandon is also the youngest person to get a death sentence in the U.S. in nearly 70 years for a crime he committed as a teenager. So, Natalie, you brought this story to our attention as one of the topics you wanted to talk about today. Tell us more about Brandon Bernard. Well, he was 40 years old um, when he was executed, um, had no priors, from what I understand, committed um, or was a part of this crime that ultimately ended in the murder of um, uh, the Bagleys, Um um, but was not the one who killed them. Uh, he is uh, was responsible for setting a fire to their car, um, and that is what ended up getting him sentenced to the death penalty. Um, and, you know, I had never heard of the story until I happened to run across it. It was either the day he was going to die or the, or the morning after. Um, and I was just outraged that I had not seen not one bit of um, news coverage anywhere, not even, you know, NPR. I had not heard anything. So I was really surprised and quite disgusted that the Trump administration had decided to pick up these executions. Um, and despite all the calls for clemency, even from the prosecutor and five of the jurors, Nothing was done and Brandon was executed. I mean, yeah, you bring up the point that um, the original prosecutor came forward and said, you know, if I had if I'd known about this, I encourage clemency. The five sentencing jurors said if we had this evidence ahead of time, we would not have supported a death sentence because there was more evidence that came up toward the end that um, really showed that he wasn't as involved as folks thought he was at the beginning. Um, Mark, I, I think you're back with us now. Um, what was your reaction to the case? It was frustrating, um, you know, on many different levels. One, because, you know, as, as someone who is, is very critical of capital punishment in the first place, um, the fact that someone makes a mistake so young and, and what's to be gained by killing him um, at this point in the juncture. And, and there almost seems to be, you know, a gleefulness you know, in, in President Trump's, you know, last couple of weeks um, to be able to kill black folks on death row, right? Even as he's preparing, you know, we assume uh, to offer clemency to so many of his cronies, 
you know, who who have actually, you know, also impacted, you know, the lives of people in terms of criminal behavior. So it's just really frustrating, right? And I think it really encapsulates everything that race has meant in the context of this presidency um, over the last, you know, three years and 11 months. I mean, you're pointing out the really historic nature of his choice to do this in this period where he's not going to be reelected or he wasn't reelected. It's a slam dunk period. And he's choosing to um, blow through this entire list of people who are um, waiting on death row and really doing more so than any president has done in decades. This did get a lot of national attention, a lot of folks really trying to um, call on President Trump to commute Brandon's sentence at the end, really appealing to the U.S. Supreme Court to delay the execution. But despite this national attention, um, the case was still decided against him. What did you make of who came forward, Natalie, and the significance of um, any of the outcry that you read and heard about? Um, well, I mean, as I said, I thought that it was incredibly um, significant that the prosecutor and five of the nine jurors you know, were like, we wouldn't, we wouldn't convict him um, and, and were lead supporters of, um, you know, attempts for clemency for Brandon. Um, you know, it was interesting, um, and I'm not going to talk about her too long, but very interesting that Kim Kardashian uh, was not only a vocal supporter, um, often tweeting about Brandon on Twitter, um, but also, you know, she was apparently in touch with him and talking to him up until the last days. Um, so there is a very interesting way that celebrity um, has shown up in this particular administration. I mean, not that it hasn't shown up in past administrations, but I just find it really um, kind of baffling that that uh, Kardashian was able to um, – you know, get Trump to commute the sentence um, and eventually pardon um, Alice Marie, I think Henderson is the name of the grandmother, the black grandmother who, after being in jail for several decades, you know, was finally released. Um, but in Brandon's case, you know, there, which is similar, I don't even know in legal terms, maybe Brandon, you know, Brandon's case might have been even, a, a, you know, deserving of a lesser charge. But the point is that the way that these cases are handled seems, especially under the Trump administration, extremely transactional. Is it is it beneficial for me to do this, um, you know, to commute the sentence of this black woman in this one instance? Um, but now that I'm mad because I didn't win, I'm going to, you know, execute these other black people, as Mark said. Mark, there are four more executions planned before Inauguration Day. Do you think there's going to be similar um, public outcry and and pressure toward the president? Are people now really looking to see whether things are going to change under a Biden administration? Well, I think there are folks who have always been committed to these issues that are still going to speak out. You know, now that Bill Barr has removed himself from the process, you know, if you will. And, and you know, and again, it fundamentally encapsulates the lack of leadership that we've seen from Donald Trump from day one. Um, that he is now governing from a position of bitterness <laughs> um, yeah. more than yeah. anything. Um, and, and always the easy targets in the context of that are, are black and brown bodies. All right. Let's move now to talk about the Ta-Nehisi Coates adaptation of or the adaptation of Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, Between the World and Me. It is on HBO now, and I want to play a clip from that HBO series. Here is a clip of Oprah um, reading some of the passage of his book. I am sorry that I cannot make it okay. 
I'm sorry that I cannot save you, but not that sorry. Part of me thinks that your very vulnerability brings you closer to the meaning of life. The fact is, I would not have you live like them. You've been cast into a race in which the wind is always at your face. The hounds always at your heels. You do not have the privilege of living in ignorance. I'm speaking to you as I always have. You're growing into consciousness and my wish for you is that you feel no need to constrict yourself to make other people feel comfortable. I never wanted you to be twice as good as them. I have always wanted you to attack every day of your brief, bright life in struggle. So that's a clip from the HBO adaptation of the Ta-Nehisi Coates bestselling book, Between the World and Me, talking about it now on Back Channel with Mark Anthony Neal and Natalie Bullock-Brown. So that is a clip of Oprah. There are a number of actors and activists that portray various parts of this book in this adaptation. Uh, Natalie, tell me about your reaction to the film. I I, I think it's beautiful. I mean, it's, um, it is, it's vibrant even given the, the, the heaviness of what Ta-Nehisi Coates is talking about um, with his son, which is essentially, um, you know, his take on the talk, right, um, that goes beyond just police inter- interaction. Um, I, I just thought it was so beautifully rendered um, to see these different actors, people like... Um, Yara Shahidi, Angela Bassett, Marshala Ali, um, Wendell Pierce. I mean, just like top-notch actors and actresses reading, or not reading, but performing, really. Um, you know, basically doing monologues of various parts of, of the book, you know, really lent, in a way, new meaning to um, Ta-Nehisi's words, but also had a way of just really driving home what Tanahasi himself, I believe, was trying to get across. And I just want to say that, you know, I really appreciate that the Oprah, that, that particular part of Oprah's part in the film was played because what part of what I really respect about Tanahasi is that he doesn't really try and fill his son with this hope that you'll transcend and overcome and, you know, everything will be okay, right? He is really trying to, um, I I feel, infuse his words with a a realism that I think does Black children service and justice. You need to know that this is what you're dealing with. But at the same time, you are brilliant and magical and all these things. And just be that. And, you know, your, your little bright life, as he puts it, you know, your short, bright life is going to mean something if you move in if you lean into that. We're going to take a quick break and come back and hear some of Mark's reaction to the HBO adaptation of Between the World and Me. Then we'll move on and talk about Steve McQueen's film anthology exploring the experiences of the West Indian community in London. Stay with us on The State of Things from North Carolina Public Radio, a broadcast service of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. 
This is the State of Things broadcasting from the American Tobacco Historic District. I'm Anita Rao. It is Back Channel today, our series connecting culture and context with Mark Anthony Neal and Natalie Bullock-Brown. Mark is the James B. Duke Professor and Chair of the Department of African and African American Studies at Duke University and host of the webcast Left of Black. Natalie is a filmmaker and teaching assistant professor at North Carolina State University. Before the break, we started talking about the Ta-Nehisi Coates 2015 book Between the World and Me, which was recently adapted on HBO for the small screen, features a wide range of actors and activists that bring ta words to life. Mixed in with these monologues are historic photographs, news footage, and hip-hop, and it's a really stunning visual tapestry. So we heard a bit about Natalie's response, and Mark, I'd love to hear yours, and especially maybe if you can talk about how it sat differently with you now in 2020 as opposed to in 2015 when the book came out. So I've always been a little lukewarm towards uh, this book and also Ta-Nehisi's work, um, in large part because it always felt to me that Ta-Nehisi was a byproduct of a certain kind of exceptionalism within African-American arts and letters. Um, You know, so much of his work seemed, at least in how people read it, to revolve around him. What I love about the film project, and kudos to Camila Forbes for the vision first to do it on stage at the Apollo and then for this film version, is that it brought it back to a collective endeavor, right? He wasn't just reading a letter to his son, right? He was reading, they were all reading letters to all of our children in that moment, right? And and it was a love letter to Howard right, which means it was also a love letter to HBCUs, you know, seeing those wonderful, you know, photographs. I saw a glimpse of my friend Natalie Hopkinson when she must have been about 19. Um, There was just something that was just so beautiful and alluring about that image that brought to life, you know, what wasn't necessarily there on the page. Um, And and that's what I loved about it. You know, the the moment where Mahershala Ali shows up and just talks about the different women that Ta-Nehisi loved, um, that was just my favorite moment of the book because it's not something that resonated the same way on the page. And they really brought it to life. I think, Natalie, you noted the difference earlier between a reading and a kind of embodied adaptation. And you saw this in each of them, especially Mahershala Ali. A tear comes to his eye and he's fully embodying these words as if he were talking to someone in his own life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that Mark is spot on, um, you know, about that that moment with Mahershala being one of the best moments of the film. And I also think, you know, when Felicia Rashad um, you know, talks about it basically embodies um, Prince Jones's mom, right? And Prince Jones was a friend of Tanahasi Coates who um, was at Howard with him and was killed um, by police. Um, you know, Felicia Rashad is such a class act anyway, but she just really, um, there's such grace and elegance in her portrayal of this mother's grief. And that brought a tear to my eye because, of course, I have a son and I just thought about what that would do to me if that were my child. And I think one thing the adaptation does well, too, is it takes that moment that was very poignant for ta Coates, the death of um, this this person that he knew from Howard, and then looks at the death of Brianna Taylor and reaction to that and kind of um, moves you through history in these ways that give you your own touch points to be able to relate to all of the themes. I want to play another clip um, from it that really focuses on the Howard section, which I know stood out to both of you, and I want to talk more about that. Howard had a big influence on ta Coates's life. Here is actress Susan Kelechi Watson voicing some of that from Between the World and Me. Let's listen. I was admitted to Howard University, performed and shaped by the Mecca, 
Now, these institutions are related, but not the same. Howard University is an institution of higher education concerns with the LSAT, magna cum laude, Phi Beta Kappa. The Mecca is a machine crafted to capture and concentrate the dark energies of all African peoples and inject them directly into the student body. Whereas most historically black schools were scattered like forts in the great wilderness of the old Confederacy, Howard was in Washington, D.C. Chocolate City and thus in proximity to both federal power and black power. The result was an alumni that spanned genre and generation. Amiri Baraka, Thurgood Marshall, Ozzie Davis, Kwame Ture. The history, the location, the alumni, the mecca crossroads of the black diaspora. Out on the yard, the communal green space in the center of campus where the students gathered, I saw everything I knew of my black self multiplied into seemingly endless variations. So that's Susan Kelechi Watson and HBO's adaptation of Between the World and Me talking about it now on Back Channel. They pay tribute to so many Howard grads, including who the film is um, dedicated to, Chadwick Boseman, which was an especially touching point of the film. Natalie, talk a bit more about Howard and, and the various Howard alums that are remembered and paid tribute to in the piece. Well, first, I just want to give another big up to Camilla Forbes and to Susan Watson, who both are Howard grads. Um, and they and, and Susan was a producer um, for the piece. And so I just think that, you know, they, they represented us so well um, in this. And, you know, Howard um, has. I can't even begin to tell you all the people who have come out of Howard, been touched by Howard. I mean, there was just an excellent, excellent piece in The New Yorker about Arthur Jaffa, um, uh, who, uh, you know, is a filmmaker, has just taken the art world by storm at age 60, um, you know, who went to Howard. Greg Tate, the writer, former writer for The Village Voice. I mean, there the list goes on and on and on. And I just want to say that my own experience with Howard is so much like what Susan Watson describes. Like the Mecca does inject the students. It injects them with this belief in yourself, with this um, just this embrace of black beauty. And you do see yourself in all these different iterations on campus. It's one of the most incredible things that I've ever experienced. And I'm just forever grateful that I actually chose to go there for grad school because it made such a difference in who I am and and how I see myself and, and certainly Black people. I want to play uh, a clip now of ta Coates. This is an interview that he did um, with Audie Cornish talking about the adaptation and talking about this experience that Black writers have um, after publishing a book like this, especially in this current moment. So let's listen to ta You know, um, I just... I love books. Books are an intimate, direct, one-on-one experience. But it is, again, necessarily limited. You know, I was certainly aware and have been aware for, you know, all my literary career that there are moments when a um, certain black and almost always male voices, you know, become the quote-unquote spokesman for a community. And even before Between the World and Me, that was not a space I really was interested in occupying. You know, I didn't write between the world and me saying this will explain to America what it's like to be black. Non-black people and and white people write best-selling non-fiction or fiction all the time. And it's not meant to assume the entire weight of a struggle. 
um, that's a tough thing for a writer, intellectual artist, or whoever to carry. Um, and, and, and frankly, it's too much. So that's Ta-Nehisi Coates talking with Audie Cornish on NPR. We're talking about the HBO adaptation of his 2015 book, Between the World and Me. Mark, I want to get your reaction to that clip, especially in this moment when we're kind of looking back on these best of books lists of the year and thinking about these books by Black authors that a few in particular that really got their profile raised this year after the Black Lives Matter movement this summer. What do you think about this kind of burden that we put on Black authors and the particular kinds of Black authors that really rise to the surface in these kind of cultural moments? Well, I think part of the burden has to do with the fact that the pressure of the publishing industry really puts on Black writers, regardless of gender, to tell autobiographical stories, right? That So even when they're incredible political and cultural insights, that resonate beyond the lives of individual people. It has to be, it, you know, the industry tells us that it has to be through the prism of memoir or the autobiographical experience, right? And, and white nonfiction writers don't have those pressures. Um, and, I, and I get it. It's an attempt to make, you know, black authors, black people more relatable, <laughs> more human, if you will. Um, but I think it does something to our ability to really fully tell a range of stories related to black folks that it all has to be rooted, you know, in our own individual experience. All right, let's move now to talk about award-winning director Steve McQueen's new five-film anthology. It is called Small Axe. It's on Amazon Prime now, and there are five films that each profile the West Indian immigrant community in a different way, spanning time in London from the mid-60s to the 80s. So let's start with Steve McQueen talking about his inspiration for the series. I needed to see these, these stories. I mean, the West Indian community have been so influential in the United Kingdom. But at the same time, we, we have not been represented correctly or acknowledged properly within within film. And uh, I just felt uh, it was, just, it was a, bit, a bit of a crazy undertaking the way of making five films. But in some ways, the, 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 it was such a big hole that I, I needed to sort of um, attempt to, to, to fill it at least. That's director Steve McQueen talking about his film anthology series, Small Acts. This is something that he's been working on for more than a decade. Mark, I'd love to get your your reaction to this, and in particular, the kind of form that it takes. It's not a five-part TV series. It's five individual films. It, it's when, you know, when McQueen says it, it fills a gap. Um, and, and this is not just the Black British experience, but what Black Americans know of that experience. I mean, it, it was, you know, this shot lovingly and beautiful, you know, as McQueen work does, right? But but it is telling kind of a intricate tale of, of these various moments, right? Some of them real, right? Some of them fiction that really encapsulate what it was, you know, first of all, for that, for that wondrous generation, and then for their children, right? And the aftermath of that, that really explains the kind of development of a, a political consciousness, like when we begin to talk about writers like a Paul Gilroy, a filmmaker like a John Acomfra, I mean, all of this is, you know, the origin moments of them developing their kind of critical sensibilities. Natalie, for you as a filmmaker, how, how did it um, strike you, especially kind of the form that he chose to tell these stories in? I mean, I... I, I... I, I think Mark hit on it. it it's, there's something about the aesthetic that really struck me, um, you know, and that I, I just want to see more of where uh, black people, black skin is, 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 is shot and lit in a way that really, you know, shows that we have all of these different, um, <laughs> we sparkle. Let me just put it that way. We have a glow. 
um, that is not often picked up on, um, you know, in, in other films. So, so that was amazing. I mean, I'm just thinking about Lover's Rock and just how the camera sort of floats through these dancers who are basically grinding, you know, uh, during the, the, the ballads, during the slow songs. Um, and it is just beautiful. It's exquisite, you know, it, and it takes you back. If you've ever experienced a, a house party, you go right back to that, you know. So there's a way that what what McQueen does with with um, these movies, uh, these films, is, is, is really universal, even though it's a specific experience that he's talking about. I, as a, you know, black woman who grew up in Chicago, Illinois, I know what that's about. And I think that's part of the brilliance. So we've got to talk about, so we're going to talk about two of the films, Mangrove and Lover's Rock, but you mentioned Lover's Rock. So let's start with that one. This is the second film in the anthology. And it is just a, a, a glorious thing to watch. You are transported into this world of this house party and you spend the entire more than 60 minutes of the film just just living in it really feeling all of the sensations. We'll try to give you as much of a sense of that as we can on the radio. This is a bit um, from the house party with couples dancing to the beat, kind of conjuring this really seductive scene, singing along to silly games. That's a clip from Lover's Rock, part of Steve McQueen's new film anthology, Small Acts. Mark, I'd love for you to talk about the music and the soundtrack for that episode and in this Lover's Rock that they're paying tribute to. Yeah, I loved that film. I mean, 80% of the film was spent at the house party and 60% of the film was actually spent on the dance. <laughs> yes. And, and so, you know, to get yourself in a place where you're not looking for a narrative, right, but just being embodied in the sense of what this means. And these parties were community, right? You know, just like the rent parties that, that Ellington and them played in in the 1920s, this is where young black folks, you know, having to deal with work and all those things could come together on a Saturday night and be community again, right? When they're singing to sing silly songs, when that moment comes later in the film where, you know, dude has this spiritual moment <laughs> where he's getting sanctified with everybody else on the dance floor. They keep playing the song over and over again. It is simply amazing, right? And and I give you know him a lot of credit for understanding that if I'm going to tell this historical story, I have to tell the small stories also, right? That the important moments that happened on some dance floor somewhere in some tenement building, some flat that don't nobody know about. And, and the feelings of authenticity, I, I was joking with one of my colleague Sasha Panoram that the authenticity of the film for me you know growing up around West Indians where the number of teeth sucks <laughs> right? that, you, know, you know the West Indian suck of the teeth right it's just that thing that yes okay this I know this right or the number of references to backsides right um, you know it, it was just you know it brought everybody in right there's always a fear with a film like this it's both a period piece but also a piece from someplace else 
that you'll feel a distance from it. You know, McQueen brings everybody, I think, into the world that produces those films. It's so funny that you say that because it took me a bit to get used to the accent. So I I had to turn on closed captioning and about every 30 to 45 seconds, you would just see teeth suck, teeth suck. So definitely a distinct part of the dialect and way of relating. Natalie, was there any other moment in Lover's Rock that really stood out to you? Um. I mean, really, the the clip that you that you played um, when they're singing, when you know the whole community at this party is singing the song. Um, you know, I was I I love the way that that we saw all of like some people were singing it as they danced with a partner, and then there were there were women who were, you know, just into it, singing, dancing with their eyes closed really into it that is so very black that is what we do i mean you don't have to have a partner if that's your song then you 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 just engage with it on your own terms so i love that about it and i also love that it was intergenerational because there's a there's the older dude from upstairs that's at this this birthday party and he's singing right along with the kids and i just i love that as mark said the community is represented in this film. It, it is all about community. And it also is so striking in relationship to Mangrove, you know, where we see all of this brutality. And this is just about joy, just just over the top joy. And I think it's just so incredible that, that um, McQueen is able to pull all this together and show all these sides of what, you know, the Black diaspora is about. So Mangrove is is the first film in the series, and I want to play a clip of that now before we go to break. So um, it's talking about the Mangrove Nine and this particular point in history. So we, we were saying that this is um, a portrayal of the Windrush generation, these thousands of people who were brought to the U.K. to fill post-war labor shortages and then faced immense discrimination um, over decades, even until a modern day, which we'll talk about a little later. But let's um, play a clip from um, Mangrove now. This is the first film in the Small Axe series featuring an activist named Darkus talking to Frank, the owner of the Caribbean restaurant Mangrove. Look, I see a man before me, right? A man of, of great patience and humility who, unbeknownst to him, has become a leader of his people. See, Allah James have it written. These are new men. He say new types of human beings because these men have perspective. They are leaders, but leaders who are rooted. Deep among those, they lead. Now he speaks of you, Frank. But I see this leader suffering the consequences of a state-sponsored attempt to close down his business. My brother, this government will never take up its responsibility to you and this community, not unless it sees people on the street. Let us organize a demonstration. We're not in Trinidad now, boy. This is Notting Hill. This is Notting Hill. This place, the mangrove, it is Notting Hill. Whether you can recognize so or not, this is the front line. The mangrove, the, the, this, this is community, the black community is your community. The black community who rely on the mangrove just as much as you rely on them. That's a clip of Mangrove, one of the films in Steve McQueen's new anthology called Small Axe. And we'll continue talking about it after the break on Back Channel with Natalie Bullock-Brown and Mark Anthony Neal. Please stay with us. 
This is The State of Things. I'm Anita Rao. My guests today are Mark Anthony Neal and Natalie Bullock-Brown. They are here for Back Channel, our series connecting culture and context. Mark is the James B. Duke Professor and Chair of the Department of African and African American Studies at Duke University, also the host of the webcast Left of Black. Natalie is a filmmaker and teaching assistant professor at North Carolina State University. Before the break, we played a clip from Mangrove, which is one of the films in Steve McQueen's new anthology called Small Axe, tells the story of the Mangrove Nine, a group of black British activists that were tried for inciting a riot at a protest um, after the targeting of the Mangrove, which was a restaurant in Notting Hill, London, that served as kind of a home for um, the Black Panther movement in that era. Mark, tell us more about the history of the Mangrove Nine and what you knew about it. You know, I knew a little bit about the story. You know, the film fleshed out a lot, right? Because, again, this is kind of ground zero for the politicization, you know, of, of the winters. Uh, generation. Um, and, you know, Critchlow, as the film shows, is, is a reluctant and ambivalent, you know, political figure. You know, he he's just a dude that wants to be able to make some good Trini food, you know, in his restaurant in, in his neighborhood. And I think the film highlights really, you know, how folks emerge in these moments, right? Folks don't go, I'm going to be a leader. I'm going to take the people here. It's, it's circumstantial, right? You know, the circumstances of the moment that he rose to, the community had an investment in his club, the Mangrove, his restaurant. And so he didn't have but little choice but to, to reflect upon that and act upon it. And the case was important because it was the first really case to publicly expose uh, police malfeasance um, in Britain. And because, you know, the, the Windrush dress, uh, when Rush generation is was in this liminal space where they were working and they were promised citizenship, but they didn't all get citizenship. You know, we now know 50 years later, uh, uh, a generation of them were, have actually been deported in the last 10 years. You know, it's really a tragic story of the unwillingness, you know, of a government entity to really take care of the people, the citizens in this country. And the story is important in this moment because it fills in the gap of what we're seeing, you know, play out in Britain right now. Exactly. And a story that really does continue through until today. I mean, I was doing some research before this show and learning about exactly what you said, this generation of people that were brought in a time when if you were a Commonwealth citizen and then moved to the UK, you got citizenship, but you didn't get the documentation, the paperwork. Right. So later on, when there was this mass effort to deport anyone thought of as an illegal immigrant, a lot of these folks from this generation were really caught in the crosshairs of right. having been there and having been brought there and, and not having the documentation. Right. Folks who never lived in Jamaica never lived in Trinidad because they were born in Britain, right, are being sent back to these home countries that they have no relationship to. Exactly. And Steve McQueen, let's play a clip of him. He talks about how this was exactly, these kinds of conversations were exactly what he was hoping would happen with this series. Here he is talking to Michelle Martin. Uh, black people in the UK. That, that, was my, uh, that was my audience. Because what's happening, which is I'm very, I'm very, very touched by, is that families are watching small acts, you know, grandmothers, uh, daughters, and, uh, and, and their children are watching small acts on, on a Sunday. And they're getting together, they're looking at it, they're, they're laughing, they're crying, they're embracing. And actually afterwards, what I'm hearing is that people are sort of opening up and talking about their experiences of living in London during that, that period to their kids. And kids are asking questions to their grandchildren, and they're having talking about similar experiences they have having, and so I'm very excited about that, hmm. and you know what sort of uh, what can come come from that. You know that's what art can do sometimes. 
Steve McQueen from an NPR interview talking about his film anthology, Small Acts. Natalie, talk about that, the role that um, art can play in filling in these gaps in education and gaps in, in historical knowledge. Well, you know, <clears throat> the um, the actress Letitia Wright, who plays Althea Jones-Lecointe, no, Jones um, who is one of the Mangrove Nine, she has a line, um, you know, in the in the film where she says, you know, we can be the protagonist of our own stories. And I think that is the point, that that is what art can do. It, it allows artists, and especially artists of color and especially Black artists, to tell their stories in ways that they have not been told before. In fact, that it allows us to, as you said, Anita, fill in those gaps in history, um, you know, in the narratives of all kinds of, of, of instances from our, um, our own personal narratives and our collective narratives that, that no one has thought to talk about or tell because it wasn't convenient, it wasn't nobody cared, whatever the case may be, but that is the beauty of, of art. And it is, you know, it's, it's a part of the reason why I love filmmaking because it allows me to participate in this creation of protagonists who are telling their own stories. And even people growing up at that time, I, I talked to my mom who w- was raised in 1960s UK in the northeast of England, and she's like, I had no idea of any of this history, even though it was going on in her own country. Let's turn now. We have two more topics, and one is very exciting. Mark wrote a profile recently for of Patti LaBelle for the New York Times Style Magazine. It came out last month, and he got to go to her house. He had some peach cobbler that she made. Mark, <laughs> tell us about Patti LaBelle's house, first and foremost. <laughs> so, you know, she lives in Villanova, which is uh, just north of the city of Philadelphia. Um, and, you know, when the editor reached out to me at the New York Times to do a piece, I just simply assumed I'd get some time on Zoom or, or a telephone call or something. And they were like, no, we actually want you to fly to Philadelphia and, and, and spend some time with her. Um, you know, that, that was daunting enough, particularly in this kind of COVID moment. You know, I hadn't been on an airplane since March. Um, but I made the quick trip there. I spent about uh, three and a half hours at her house. I only spent 45 minutes actually with her. Um, and so it was actually really nice to kind of gather the movement of the family. They were doing the photo shoot for the piece also at the same time. So, you know, the great Deb Willis and the great her son, Hank Willis Thomas, were there doing the shoot. So, you know, that felt together almost like a regathering, <laughs> you know, of folks and friends and family that, you know, I've known for a little while. Um, it, it was really just a magical day, right? And and all the expectations, right? We think about Patti LaBelle as this incredible diva. We think about the style of the clothes. We think about the hair going back to the 80s and the 90s. And, and the point that I made in the piece is that, you know, she is like your down-to-earth or round-away auntie. Um, you know, one of those aunties that we know, you know, throughout our communities that if you come over to the house, they're going to give you a plate of something, cobbler, cake, pie, fried chicken, fried fish, it, something, right, you know, to fill your belly, to make you feel as though you're at home. And, and that's exactly how I felt, you know, the time that I was there with Miss LaBelle. Natalie, what struck you when reading it? Did, did it take you down memory lane? Uh, absolutely. Um, and, and Mark, who I always quip knows everything about everything, <laughs> you know, really helps us, helps to put Patti LaBelle in a historical context, but also gives us all this wonderful intimate detail about her, 
her life, you know, um, details that I didn't know about her growing up, but also about, you know, just her, her energy, you know, her presence um, that, you know, we can sense just through her music and her performances. Um, but certainly, as I read, I thought about, you know, some of my favorite songs by Patti LaBelle, um, you know, which were um, hits when I was in high school. Um, if Only You Knew and I Love and Need and Want You, you know, these are songs that make up the soundtrack of my, you know, my teenage years and, and no doubt many of my friends. And, you know, there's, there's something about Patty that is timeless um, and that is always going to, um, she always evokes like just memories um, and a warmth, even though we don't know her, she feels like an auntie. So I can totally get what Mark talks about in his piece. Mark, you talk about so many of the, of her songs throughout your piece. And one that I had to look up is you talk about her singing the ABCs in a Sesame Street episode. And we have got to listen to this because only she could make the ABCs come to life in this way. Let's listen. So Patti LaBelle on Sesame Street in 1998, talking about her legacy today on Back Channel. I mean, Mark, a master of her craft, a master of her voice, able to make that song come to life. Yeah, you know, I I was really honored to do the piece for for a few reasons. You know, the the, the inside baseball part of it is that, you know, it was a 3,500-word piece in which there were another 2,500 words it didn't make. (laughs) you know to print um but you know she is a figure who in many ways have been overshadowed by some of her peers you know aretha franklin and diana ross specifically and and with the passing of aretha franklin um one of the things that happened to pay labelle is that she's still active she's still vibrant until covid she was still touring um you know what we saw with her and gladys knight at the verses you know a few months ago you know she's still someone out there who's working and vibrant and still making great music. And so it was an honor, right, to be able to tell her story in this moment in ways that it hadn't been told. Um, And, you know, it was part of a package that the Times Style Magazine did, you know, with Barbara Streisand and Dolly Parton. And I think rightfully sold, that's so, that's where we should think of who Patti LaBelle is, right, amongst, you know, these three great vocalists. The, The best part of the story for me was that the day that the piece hit online, I see a message, you know, I see a phone call coming in from Philadelphia, right? I have no idea who it is. <laughs> I assumed it was Patti LaBelle's publicist. 
Um, but it was Patty LaBelle, you know, who called just to tell me, as she joked, you know, all her friends, she said, were saying to her, you know, is this man your husband? Because he seems to know more about you than your husband does. Love it. Um, and I was playing on speakerphone, right? So my wife wasn't very happy to hear that. <laughs> um, but it did speak to just how down to earth she was. And I was just so happy that she appreciated, you know, that I, I could put into words and that Hank and Deb really put into photos, you know, the essence of who she is. All right. We're going to close by talking about the 50th anniversary of this classic Christmas tune from 1970, Donny Hathaway's This Christmas. Presents and cards are here. My world is filled with cheer and you. This Christmas and as I look around, your eyes outshine the town they do. Natalie, you grew up in Chicago uh, during this time period. Tell us about um, remembering the song at, on the 50th anniversary. Well, I was about, I was, I was just born. <laughs> so I don't have many memories of, of it in my early childhood, but definitely, you know, as I was growing up and certainly in my teenage years during high school, I mean, the song came on, you know, almost immediately, as soon as it was Christmas season, you know, that was the song that was played. Um, and, you know, I think there's a lot of, of pride that Chicago has in this native son, um, because Donny Hathaway, of course, is just this incredible singer who's completely underrated and whose life was cut way too short. Um but there's also the fact that he, you know, this song in particular um, certainly transcends Chicago. I mean, it is the Black Christmas anthem, you know, throughout Black communities all over the country. Um, my husband loves this song um, and will sing it for you if I were to bring him in here and <laughs> sing it for you. Um, so it just has this enduring, lasting um, <clears throat> effect. Um, and I think it, you know, it's just he's so soulful um, in in every song that he he ever sang. But there is something about this song that really speaks to I think the some of the work ethic and the striving um, of Black Chicago and the excellence. You know, that's what I hear when I listen to it, and I think that's a part of its appeal. Mark, for you, where does this the song stand? Um on its 50th birthday in the lineup of Black Christmas anthems. Yeah, you know, there are a generation of Black folks for which, you know, Black Christmas music are, is always going to begin and end with Nat King Cole, you know, singing the the Christmas song, right? But, you know, Donny Hathaway in this regard is like our generation, right? It's, it's that post-soul generation, that soul generation that that looked towards what Donny Hathaway did. And, and the irony of the song... You know, it's a happy song. It's a joyful song. And, and there's not a lot of Donny Hathaway music that is happy and joyful, you know, which suggests that, you know, there was something about the Christmas season and what was happening in his life at that time, you know, that, that we hear in the song. There's also some irony that for many white audiences, the only Donny Hathaway song that they've ever heard 
is this Christmas, right? They don't know any of his other music. And I'm sure he would have a wry smile at the idea with all the great music that he did, and as Natalie mentioned, so much of it overlooked and he was underrated, that the most well-known song in his catalog, right, would be this Christmas song that, that he just happened to do, right? He was in a mood, wanted to write a Christmas song and wrote a Christmas song, right? Not having any idea that 50 years later, you know, that someone would make an animated cartoon video of it, <laughs> you know, to celebrate it 50 anniversary. We'll place a link to that animated video at our website, stateofthings.org. We've come to the end of the show, which means we've come to the end of back channel appearances on the State of Things over the years. Natalie and Mark have been part of the show for five years and, and much longer. Thank you so much to all of your contributions, all of your intellect and humor and wisdom. Thank you both so much to both of you. Thank you, Anita. Thank you, Anita. You can find information about both of them and ways to follow their work as we say goodbye for the State of Things at our website, stateofthings.org. North Carolina Public Radio is a broadcast service of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Anita Rao.